Um, If you're using one of the Bibles that's provided for you, we're on page 262 in chapter 11. If you were with us last week, um, last week's events in David's life was just one of the, the, the cooler moments, just one of the amazing extension of kindness to someone in need in a person named Mephibosheth that um, David wanted to bless because of how he was blessed by his own father, Jonathan. It was just a, a great example for all of us to look at and to be amazed by and then to make us think even more about the kindness of God. Second uh, Samuel chapter 11 is the opposite of that. Um, things go downhill really fast in this chapter, and bless you. And David makes just a series of, well, you'll see. I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty obvious, um, and it's really, really sad. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, a daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him And he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Well, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house. And there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. And when they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house. David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. And then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also and tomorrow and I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. And then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, when you finish telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king answers, his anger rises, and he says to you, why did you go so near to the city to the fight? 
Do you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who, who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field. But we drove them back to the entrance of the gate and then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, thus shall you say to Joab, do not let this matter trouble you for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And that's where we'll stop. It shouldn't be a surprise to you, but this wasn't as much fun of a passage to prepare for. (laughs) Not... Almost anything good or redemptive happens in this part of the story. It's hard to read through it in all of its detail and almost not feel it. Like, ugh. That when you get to the end and you read, and the thing that David had done displeased the Lord, you're just like, oh, I hope so. (laughs) I really hope so. I hope someone knows about this, is aware of this, and I hope someone else is disgusted by this. So we're looking at sin today and the way that sin works in our lives, but it's here for us because it's meant to be instructive to us. There is something that we can learn from this when we think about not just the better moments of a person's life, but the way in which sin works and the way in which we all struggle. So we just take it. It's one of the reasons we preach through the Bible chapter by chapter is we believe that it includes the good and the bad, the ugly, and that all of that is instructive for us, that it's, it's there for a reason. There is so much that's not here that we take everything that's here as being here for a reason and for our good. And so there's some things that we need to learn about the way in which sin works. Because like the quote in the back of the handout says, Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Sin will do that to us. So that if we don't ever take time to think about how it works and does that to us, we'll get caught in that cycle. If we can think about it, get a little bit of a handle on how it works, hopefully that is preventative medicine for most of us. But here's David It's the spring of the year. It's a time when kings go out to battle. Harsh winters often meant that even in the midst of hostile conflict, there was a bit of a break in the battles while everyone just dealt with the winter together. But springtime came, the weather was turning. Okay, now people could return to battle. David himself does not return to battle, but he sends out all of his men and all of his army out to battle. And one of the ways that sin works is first of all it presents us with something that it tells us we need to know so sin comes to us and says there's something you need to know 
not just in our mind, but something that you need to know experientially. That there's something in this world that you don't have, but if you had it, man, it'd make you a lot happier. You, you, you need to know what it's like to have this. That's how it started as Genesis opens up and tells us about Adam and Eve and they know all the rules that are before them but the serpent comes to them and says, but if you do this, you'll know good and evil. There's something you, right now you don't know about. And so of course, you know, it's whatever but if you, if you partake in this, then you'll know what it's like to be God. You'll know what it's like to discern good and evil. And here's David. He actually already, as we've said before, if you've been with us in this series, he has a number of wives. But he is at home, on the top of his roof, not out at battle, and he sees a woman who is beautiful, and the temptation is there's something that he wants to know more. It it, it could have stopped to just say, you know, and David was on his roof and he saw something, and she was beautiful, but he realized, look, that's not, she's not my wife, that's not appropriate, I have multiple wives, there, there's nothing wrong with her being beautiful, there's nothing wrong with him seeing her on a rooftop, but the temptation is that it gets into his own heart to say, but I want to know experientially what it is like to be with that person. And so he is tempted to have an affair And unfortunately, in this situation, for David's sake, he has all the power to do it. He's the head of the country. So that what David is dealing with is actually not even just a temptation of lust, but a temptation to abuse power. He's a king, and he can make things happen. So, I mean, he does. He orders people to go and to get her. Well, first he says, who is this person? And they know, he has people that can get information. This is before Google, okay? So he has to get a couple of people and say, what, who is this person? When we read in verse three, a list of, well, this is Bathsheba, the daughter of so-and-so, the wife of so-and-so, it doesn't trigger anything for us immediately. But what he's basically saying is, this is someone, you know her father, and you know her husband. This is someone who's, you, you know people who know this person. And there again would have been an opportunity for him to say, oh, I'd, I didn't know that that was so-and-so's daughter or so-and-so's husband. Those people are loyal to me. They're faithful to me. They work hard for me. Instead, he gives in to the temptation. He takes her. He has an affair with her. She becomes pregnant as a result. Now, the second temptation of how sin works is from telling us there's something that we need to know is now when we've given into temptation and we've acted upon sin, that is now something that others cannot know. That is now, our giving into sin and our giving into temptation is now something that other people can't find out about. And so it goes from having to be this it's so good that our life won't be complete unless we act on it. Two, it's so bad, you, get, you better make sure no one ever knows you did this. <laughs> because if they find out you did this, I mean, what are they going to think of you? And so it, it switches. Now it's something that nobody should know about. 
And so the rest of the chapter is David going to all of these great lengths to hide his sin. And everything he does to try to hide his sin leads him into more sin. So the first thing he does is he says, send Uriah home from battle. And basically, let's just give this soldier rest. And if he's at rest and he's home for a couple of days, when this baby is born, no one will know who the father is. That's his strategy, which in the realm of possibilities is fairly reasonable. Bring him back home from battle. It'll be a mystery, and if someone finds out, they find out. But Uriah refuses to go back home. He comes back to the city. He follows the king's instructions. But he says, this is a time of battle. And so there's David willing to take what is not his. And the contrast is then Uriah, who is unwilling to take what is rightfully his, to say, we're in a time of war. I didn't didn't come home. I don't need a break, because my friends aren't getting a break right now. My commander's not getting a break. And so I'm here because you sent me here, but the moment I can go back and keep doing what I'm doing alongside my brothers, let me know. And so what he does is he, he sleeps basically outside of, in Jerusalem and refuses to go back home to what is otherwise rightfully his. And then there again, what an opportunity for David to feel some sense of conviction and be like, wow. That, yeah, I, that, that's what I did not do. I was not willing to prioritize my brothers, the nation, the, 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 this, the reality that we're at war like you are, but he doesn't. So what he does, if you didn't catch it as we're just reading through it, is he sends now Uriah back into battle. He gives Uriah a letter. And so Uriah is holding this letter. He takes it back to his commander. And what he is holding is the orders for his own execution. When he gives Joab the piece of paper that David is sending, Joab opens it, and he's looking at him. And it says, make sure he gets in the front of the battle, in the worst of the battle, and then remove your men from him so that he's alone in battle, so that he dies. And it was Uriah himself who carried that message back to Joab. David is going to all of these lengths to make sure that his sin is not found out. So that the first temptation was, here's something that I need to know, that there's an experience out there that my life won't be complete without. And now the temptation is, this is something so bad, so serious, no one can know. And then that temptation leads him into what ultimately becomes the murder of Uriah. And David here again, with his authority and his power and the type of people he's put around him, Joab reads it and says, okay, you command, I'll follow. You want this done, I'll do it. Instead of what we might hope is someone who'd say, why would he want this? Why would he order this? I know he's the king, but he shouldn't just get away with anything. He shouldn't be allowed to just order anything. David is not surrounded by those types of people that hold him accountable. He's not surrounded by people that ask him questions. They follow orders. And so Joab does that. So that now 
Uriah dies, and then David says, okay, so now I can receive this woman into my home. Hopefully people don't do the math on how many months after she delivered, and it will look like I just now have another wife and another son. So that, like I said, when you get to the end of it, you're just like, what? And then it's just, it's at least helpful to hear that the thing that David done had displeased the Lord. But this is how sin works in our hearts. It first tries to tell us that there's something that we need to know, we need to act upon, we need to take, whether it's legitimate or not, because we need to have it. Our life isn't complete without it. And then in a, in a weird switch, it binds us with this shame that says, well, because you've done it, you, the only way you can now be happy and the only way you can now have a fulfilled life is if nobody ever knows what you really struggle with, what sins you've really committed, and the things that you've really done. And so the opening song we sang today, let no one caught in sin remain inside the lie of inward shame. Well, what's the lie of inward shame? Well, it's along the same lines of the first lie. There's the lie of Satan to say, we need this to be happy. And then there's the lie of Satan to say, people could never know this about you and you ever have a happy or meaningful life. It's, it's just as much of a lie the second time as the first time. We'll usually think about temptation in the realm of the first one and not as much in the second one. And to think about the ways in which sin leads us into more sin. And like the quote says, it takes us further than we wanted to go. It keeps us longer than we wanted to stay. It makes us pay more than we wanted to pay. Here's the thing that also makes this particularly sad. Uh, If you go to Psalm 36. Psalm 36. What David is dealing with here is not a lack of information. (laughs) Uh, And most of us, sin is not an issue of information and education. (laughs) People are not now committing committing murder in this world because they don't know it's wrong. That's not the issue. People are not now in this world breaking promises to the people they got married to or to the jobs that they're employed by because they don't know that it's wrong to break promises. So that when we read now in Psalm 36, verses 1 through 4, we get this actually amazing description in the name of David about how sin works. It says in verse 1, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. And that's where we'll stop. This is not David reflecting on what he did. We'll be there next week in Psalm 51, where David is looking back on what he did and realizing, wow, how wrong it is. This is David actually giving an incredibly perceptive account of how sin works in our hearts that it comes to us deep in our heart and basically, first, it, it makes us have, we have no fear of God before our eyes. 
We're no longer thinking about God, what he would want, what his standards are, what his will is, or what he's done for us, what he's already given to us, how he's blessed us beyond measure. There is no fear of God, and so our view of God diminishes, but then our view of ourselves increases. He flatters himself in his own eyes and has the presumption that he can do this sin and not be found out and hated. And then from that, his mouth, his trouble, He's not acting wisely. He plots evil while he's in his bed and he does not reject evil. So when we look at David, we say he doesn't have an information problem. He actually understands some of the depths and the nuance of sin and how it works. But he still sins. He still falls. He still fails. That's true of you and me. I just spent up a week looking at this text, thinking about how did David do this, what was going on. But all of that study doesn't make me any less prone to the potential and the dangers of sin. Because it's not a problem of how much information I have or how much Bible study I've done. You can know it, but still give in to it. And actually that's true of all of us. We all know deep down in our hearts certain things that are right and wrong, but when we look at our lives and the choices we've made, we say, man, a lot of times we choose what's wrong, and it's actually the very fact that we know that that's wrong, that we keep on choosing wrong, trying to hide that and cover that so that people wouldn't find out about it. Hopefully, the Spirit is working in your own mind, in your own heart, to think through ways in which this struggle happens in your own heart. This temptation that, man, if people find out what I've done, they'll just never, they'll never love me, they'll never care for me, they'll never want to have a relationship with me. And so that, that is one of the strategies that Satan uses to keep us in our sin much, much longer. So for me, one of the clearest examples of this was being given an assignment uh, in seminary uh, to translate a certain passage of the Bible that was about, if you print it all out, maybe at least 10 pages worth. Professor said, now you're not going to know every word here, so do as much of this as you can do on your own with what you know, and then when you need to consult the, the book, consult the book. So you should, like 90% of this should be you, 10% of this, don't worry, don't lose sleep, you know, look it up and find it, because there's certain words that are only used one time, or they're only parsed one time, and so you're, you, you won't even find much by way of resources to help you with this. So it should be 90% you, 10% the book. Well, when you tell someone you're allowed to consult the book, <laughs> that's tempting, right? And it was for me. And there was, there was a variety of reasons, and I don't want to go into them, because I don't want to sound in any way that I'm justifying it. But when I turned it in, it was about 30% me, 70% the book. Turned in the assignment. 30% me, about 70%. Let me just look it up. I mean, we're allowed to do it anyway. All kinds of justification. So I cheated on an assignment. Knew it. But then what's the temptation? I cheated on an assignment that was related to the Bible. <laughs> what? what? Who does that? I cheated on an assignment related to the Bible and I was given a scholarship to be in school. Oh, 
Someone else is paying for me to be here. To do the work. To take the time. To learn the stuff. If I confess that I did that, every institution of higher learning has the possibility to expel you if you're caught cheating. So if I cheated on the assignment in a Bible class, have insulted someone who paid for it, and then I get expelled for it. Well, I shouldn't say anything. Better not tell anyone. Who would hear that and have any sense of respect? But God in his spirit worked over time and said, no, 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 you're not, you're not graduating, you're not walking across the stage with an asterisk around your diploma. You're going to go in and you're just going to confess. But I can tell you, I mean, that temptation of not confessing was even stronger than the temptation to just cheat on the assignment. So I went into a room, met the professor, you know, asked for an appointment to meet him in his office. So this is how you gave the assignment. This is how I turned it in. I cheated on it. You can report me to the head of the school. You can ask me to redo the class. You, whatever you determine is appropriate, you can do. No idea what he would say. But one of the things that was brought home to me in that moment that had already been learned in my Christian life was forgiveness is a real option. And it is the option that opens up the most amount of possibilities of anything else in this world. And he just looked across the table and said, I forgive you. What do you mean you forgive? I mean, I'm not going to make you redo the assignment. I'm not going to report it to someone else. I'm going to forgive you for that. I didn't even think about that as an option. (laughs) But all along, Satan was saying, no, 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 people can't know this about you. If they know this about you, what what are they going to think about you? Yeah, I guess, what, what would people think about me if they thought about me as someone in need of forgiveness? I think that's a way of describing a Christian, isn't it? If you say you're a Christian, then you say you believe that someone had to die in order for your sins to be forgiven. And so there is a very real option of loving one another and forgiving one another and experiencing freedom that now in about two weeks I'm going to start on a project that will represent one of my first opportunities to work on a book project. And I'm going to be doing it with this professor five years later who forgave me. It's just a a wonderful thing that God can do through his people. And I know that even in saying it, there's this temptation of, man, how are people going to look at me if I tell them certain things of what I've done? It's one of the dangers. We just wonder, are there things that others cannot know about us? Because here's the temptation. If, if we allow this cycle to continue, that we needed to know that and then we need to make sure nobody else knows it, eventually by the end we'll get to this situation where we say, you know what, that was basically something out of nothing. The, the most serious consequence of sin 
is that we no longer think of it as sin. That we look back and enough time has passed that we say, you know what, that really wasn't that bad. And I bet somebody else did something worse and I bet, you know, I bet there's whole kinds of examples of other things that could have happened. And that's how in Romans chapter one, the Bible describes ultimately the depravity of man that when we get to the situation where we sin so much and we give into this temptation of trying to hide it so much, eventually one of the things that that does to us is that it makes us think of sin as something out of nothing and that it's not really that bad and therefore we'll just keep on doing it. Which is very different than what our world says to us, which is if it feels good, do it. And we all know this, the more often you do something, the less sensitive you become and the easier it is to do it. And so the more often you do it, now it actually starts to feel good to do. And if we run with that, then we're now on a trajectory of just continuing to sin. And that is its own punishment, that we no longer feel the sting of it and feel the pain of it. And so from something that we needed to know and now something others can't know, we get into this realm where it's something out of nothing and it's not really a bad deal. Here's the thing, the Bible provides us an antidote to all of these. When we look at our lives and we're tempted by something that we need to know, if we submit ourselves to the Lord and do his word, it provides us with contentment. One of the best antidotes to sin is to look at your life and say, I don't need anything else in my life to give me joy. I don't. I don't need to acquire one other thing in my life right now to have joy. I've been given enough. I've experienced enough that I can have joy. And so are there plenty of beautiful things out there? Are there plenty of wonderful opportunities that are out there? Sure. And if you get elevated in a certain status in life and you even have the power to make those things happen, they're there. But that is much harder to grab hold of us if we have an attitude of contentment. Yeah, you know, that is great. But that's not mine. And I don't need that to be happy. I don't need that to have joy. I have everything I need in my life and my heart for joy. The antidote for being afraid that there's something that others cannot know is confession to just actually confess to people sins that you've done. Because you can't experience forgiveness until you've confessed something. Until you've stood before someone and asked them and told them what it is that you've done wrong. Satan will keep that lie in your mind, in your heart, that people will treat you differently based on what they know instead of this very real, wonderful and amazing opportunity to know what freedom is. To look at two people and say, oh, Neither one of us are innocent. We're both broken. But we've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And that's such a deeper fellowship between people that they could experience than innocence would ever have afforded them. Confession is the way to feel that, to know that. And then when we try to make sin something out of nothing, if we're content in who we are in Christ and in the things that we have and we're willing to openly confess struggles, It will preserve our conscience. It will preserve us going forward. That when we do something else, which we're going to do, there will be that still small voice in our minds and hearts that says, that was wrong. No, you shouldn't have said it that way. You shouldn't have done it that way. That voice is so soft in us 
that we want as much as possible to not do anything to shut it off. And the only way to keep us attuned to hearing that is if we pursue contentment and pursue confession and then God gives us the ongoing gift through his Holy Spirit to speak into our minds and hearts in our conscience to say, this is what's right and this is what's wrong. Because the day that flame goes out is a dark, dark day. We all need that flame to be lit and to have fuel for it. So now, if you're not there, go back to Psalm 36 and we'll see how where, where part of this antidote comes from that David himself knew about, but he just took his eyes off of. Because the rest of the psalm identifies for us the very ways in which we can walk in the freedom that God longs for us to have. Psalm 36, verse five. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind, they take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. And you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. And that's where we'll stop. See, David was no longer enamored by the love that God had for him. And was content in that love. And so he pursued hard after sin. And then he took his eyes off of the reality that God is forgiving and he's generous and he's wonderful and it's possible to come before him with confession. It's next week that we'll learn all that had to take place for David to finally see the ugliness of his sin. But this for us is just a good place to start. Are we, as we sang, fixing our eyes on Jesus, being reminded ever of his righteousness, his love, and that in his light, we see light. So I invite you now to stand as we read these verses together and then as we sing the truth. So Psalm 36, verses five through nine. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we confess that we so often take our eyes off of the abundance of provision and blessing that you give to us and that we are so often tempted to sin because we're so forgetful of the river of delights that you're willing to share with us. 
So we just pray that you would save us from ourselves, that when we forget about really how good we have it and when someone else makes us think we need something else to have joy, that you would just remind us of your love and your faithfulness and all of the joy that you possess and are so willing to generously share with us. Father, help us that when we're convicted of sin, when you speak to us in our conscience to confess, to repent, to not allow sin to take us farther than we wanted to go and to pay a cost that we never wanted to pay. Father, through your spirit, as you move in this place and in our hearts and minds, if you look down and you see in our attitudes and in our actions things that displease you, just like David, Father, we pray that you would bring that to our minds and help us to lay it before you and to trust in you with it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.